It's not possible to forget pictures. Anyone who works in them thinks of them constantly. Irene Dunn Chapter 7 We were in pre-production for months, which is otherwise known as development. It's mostly an accounting trick, cinema semantics, as some impressive dollar deals are tied to certain points in the film schedule, like the huge fees that are handed out the first day of principal photography. In the meantime, Jake and I and Dave moved into our new home. A major domo slash babysitter was hired from an employment agent that specialized in impeccable credentials and resumes that included service to British aristocrats. Mr. Booker had traveled the world, mostly in a capacity he wouldn't discuss during the Cold War. He tut-tutted when I swore in Italian, and when he put Jake to bed at night, he often called our little one Habibi. I liked his mysterious aura and cracked myself up thinking Mr. Booker might once have been covert ops. If that had been the case, there was not a whit of daredevil left to him at the age of 60. The hire appealed to Dave's sense of importance, and since the major domo was approaching retirement and embodied the hauteur my husband thought was a befitting reflection on him and the grandfatherly aspect, Indeed, Mr. Booker reminded me of an older, much more verbal version of my father. So, with the grandfatherly aspect required for Jake, things were looking rosy. Never would Dave be spied rubbing suntan lotion on Mr. Booker's back. Nor would he be tempted to play tonsil hockey with Mr. Booker in darkened restaurants. Mr. Booker wore black horn-rimmed glasses that looked like they had been placed on his face in the early 1960s. Mr. Booker insisted on cultivating a proper kitchen garden. Mr. Booker was in the process of reading Jake, Moby Dick, unabridged, as a bedtime story. When I questioned his choice, Mr. Booker said, Young men are like puppies. It matters little what I say, it's the tone in which I say it, madam. In my experience, early exposure to literary prose will only serve to elevate Jake's intellect. No doubt Joseph Conrad would be next on their reading list, but Mr. Booker made me feel safe. The same couldn't be said of the company I was keeping as development transitioned into pre-production and pre-production turned into the last few weeks before photography on Cooper Daniels' film. Daniels was a bit of a puzzle. One day in the ever-noisier, ever-busier office, he sat on the edge of my desk and began to ask questions about the script, what worked, what didn't. Taking a reporter's notepad from his pocket, he jotted down my answers. Hey, Billy, he said out of nowhere, could you find me the complete works of Shakespeare? Okay, when do you need it by? As soon as possible. What for? I figured he wrote just about everything, you know. I guess my granddad thought so. He used to read the plays to his kids instead of letting them listen to brain-draining radio. Ah, before brain-draining television? Exactly, I said. He collected all sorts of Shakespeare editions. Ah, that's funny, said Cooper. My grandfather collected string. I laughed so hard my eyes got watery, my vision blurred, and my nose ran. Cooper started laughing because I was laughing. When he offered me his sleeve to wipe my face and I waved it away trying to catch my breath, the laughter only intensified. 
The gale slowly abated, and for the remainder of the day, we only had to look at each other, and we would begin to beam. We weren't always on the same cheery wavelength. On a location scout in the magical red rocks of New Mexico, for which I had chartered a Learjet on the company account, he was extremely distant, and I endeavored not to judge. Cooper Daniels and I, the cinematographer, the location scout, and Patience and Peace, ventured out from the airport in January in an old Cadillac with bench seats to drive the twisting roads not far from Sedona. The car exhibited a supremely smooth ride, which is why Cooper had specified the make. At some point in our journey, Patience and Peace wordlessly produced plastic bags of dark, ominously desiccated mushrooms from their slouchy handbags and handed them each to both Cooper and the director of photography. The location scout pulled the car over. Cooper and the director of photography, using their fingers like tongs, gathered up about a tablespoon of the gnarled vegetation and ate the mushrooms. Roughly 20 minutes were spent suppressing the urge to vomit up something that tasted like bitter fermented dirt, but worse. For 20 minutes, they dry heaved and then sipped on beers until they finally wiped their grinning faces with the backs of their hands and climbed up on the hood of the Cadillac and placing their backs on steel and their faces above the grill, they instructed the location scout to tie them in place and drive, drive very slowly while they became the camera. Seriously, that's exactly what they did. I remembered something about the harmonic convergence in 1987, during which people had flocked to Sedona, a place that was said to be riddled with vortexes and not the kind you find spinning in the Atlantic Ocean or down the drain. These were more theoretical in nature, or complete figments of the imagination, and Cooper and the director of photography were spotting everyone. They chattered gleefully about comet trails and starbursts and waves and atoms and divinity and wings and totems and roots and membranes and paths and arteries and the meaning beneath the meaning. The words dappled, sparkling, dripping, and glowing were repeated often and sometimes they just giggled and sometimes they just oh and odd, and had they not been tied down, they probably would have rolled together and embraced at the sheer beauty and oneness of the universe. Can Ron really say I tried not to judge? Well, I failed. The drive was excruciatingly slow and lasted as long as the hallucinogenic effects of the mushrooms. Four hours. Four hours with a pair of blondes who spoke in monosyllables. Correction, one blonde who spoke in monosyllables and one blonde, Peace, who never spoke at all. And a location scout, white-knuckled and fearful of dashing the brains of his director and his top cameraman all over the pavement. However, we survived, all of us. At breakfast the next morning at a swanky hotel, everyone ate voraciously, bacon and eggs and pancakes and sausages and oatmeal and bowls of fruit. Patience and Peace each downed a yogurt granola parfait and tall, frosty tumblers of orange juice, 
and steaming cups of peppermint tea. No caffeine. They must have considered it unhealthy. I prayed for turbulence on the jet back to Los Angeles. The flight back was as calm as could be. Obviously, there was no God. Instead of thunder and wrath and wind shears, I got an earful about insight and communion. As they babbled about physics and spirituality and how film masterpieces resembled dreams, it was no comfort to me, quite the opposite, that on the molecular level, there wasn't any way to distinguish myself from the people currently talking and talking and talking. What was it about transcendent states that bugged me? Was it that the people who had them would never shut up? No, it was something more. I became irritated when people got really drunk as well. There it was. After my very tepid drug experiences in college, the thought of losing control made me uncomfortable, so I avoided it. When others lost control, it made me furious. I'd have to work on that. Losing control, I thought, could be an eye-opener or... It could merely be a way of anesthetizing yourself out of the pain of living. I thought again, thus far, very little pain. I had a sheltered childhood, a brief experience on my own in Cambridge and Boston, if dorm life can be referred to as on your own, and then I stumbled into marriage. Of course, my stumbling had ruined one family to start another. Intellectually, I now knew that. Did I feel it in my bones? Not really. I worried about my capacity to empathize and act on that empathy, and then I decided I was confusing myself and that I'd have to think about it later, after I was no longer airborne. Not that much later, at the office, after buying quarts of the health food equivalent of Gatorade for my trippy colleagues, the phone rang on my desk. It was a bad ring. Or maybe I was just in a bad mood. I answered the phone. It was the first Mrs. Taylor. Hi, Billy. I would recognize that voice anywhere. I instantly regressed 10 years. Hi, Mrs. Taylor. Oh, God, I was Mrs. Taylor. Well, on paper at any rate. What was I saying? Gabrielle laughed. I go by my maiden name, Billy. It's Klein. I'm sorry, Mrs. Klein. Don't mention it. No, Mrs. Klein, I'm really, really, really sorry. Billy? Yes, ma'am? I called because I have an agenda, but it sounds like you've got one of your own. So let's get yours cleared up first. Okay. Do you think it's any fun being married to a man who compulsively fucks teenagers? And I believe by this point you understand what I mean. Yes, Mrs. Klein. Any fun? No, ma'am. It's the opposite of fun. Good. Now I want you to do me a favor. You name it. Well, Dave isn't working right now, but it turns out you are, and Andrew wants to take a semester off. And I know if he isn't kept occupied, he's just gonna, he's just gonna dick around and get into trouble. So I want you to get him on your movie. I want him to be a PA. Can you handle that? Yes, but I think so, but... But? I was thinking about the events of the weekend and Andrew's addiction issues. 
I was thinking I had just met the first assistant director, king of all production assistants, a month ago. He was tall, very handsome, and had a weird militaristic manner. The way he held himself, the way his hair was cropped short back and sides, the way he referred to a 6 a.m. call to set when he was breaking down the script for the shooting schedule. I had asked why so early. Zero dark 600. Time enough to toughen you up, princess. As a matter of fact, I wondered if he knew my name at all because he called me alternately princess or spice or his favorite trouble, as in here comes trouble. That's what I was thinking, but what I said was this. Uh, well, you know he'll be averaging 14 to 18 hours at work every day. Exactly, said Gabrielle Klein. As will you, dear. And I know you'll keep an eye on him. You were always, always very conscientious about the children. There it was, I thought. I had a hand in screwing Andrew up by supplying him with an absent father, and now I was going to be held responsible for making sure he wasn't screwed up again. No problem. I'd be happy to. The actuality of what I was facing made my stomach drop. We terminated the call amicably. Rocking forward in my chair, I placed my elbows on the desk and thought of Jake. He was in kindergarten from eight until one. Between Dave and Mr. Booker, he had very present parental influence. Until very recently, I had made sure I was home every morning to make him breakfast and every evening to put him to bed. Was that enough? If it wasn't enough, it was going to get even worse when we started filming. I laid my head on the desktop. I closed my eyes for a second. Hey, Spice, hop two. I knew who it was, but the delivery was wrong. I opened my eyes. It wasn't the first assistant director. It was Cooper Daniels. He was looking at me like I'd suddenly turned into something or somebody else. He was looking at me like I was human. The drugs must not have worn off yet. His dark eyes gleamed luminous against his pale skin. His five o'clock shadow only intensified the contrast. How you holding up, Billy? I'm fine, Mr. Daniels. Don't bullshit me, Billy. I see you. He made a V with his fingers and pointed at his eyes and then at me. I see you. Thank you, Mr. Daniels. Cut it out. You know something, Billy? Sometimes you can be really irritating. I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to be irritating. Cooper Daniels whistled in and then blew out a big puff of air. Let's go get something to eat. You hungry? Not especially, sir. There, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That. Come with me and keep me company. Anyway. He looked like he was trying to say something and couldn't. Anyway, I, th I think I owe you. Me? I don't think babysitting people taking psychedelics is a standard job requirement for a director's assistant, Cooper said. I heard in the 30s and 40s they popped Benzedrine here like it was candy, I answered. Cooper shook his head. Different animal. Benzedrine's bead. Look, whatever it is, I'm sorry. We ended up at a nice place with a limited menu and a passionate chef in the kitchen. Almost the first words out of Cooper's mouth when we were seated, handed menus, and the waiter had retreated 
were intensely personal. You know, just because a man is promiscuous, just because he wants to sleep with a lot of women, doesn't mean he's a bad man. It doesn't mean he's immoral. I looked around to make sure he was addressing these comments to me. Yes, I'm talking to you. I know what's going on in your marriage. Look at me. I like to sleep with a lot of women, and my intention is to keep doing it for as long as I can, but that doesn't make me a bad guy. I nodded, quite sure he was bearing the lead. I thought of Shepard's guiding credo, never disagree. Once Cooper got caught up in his point, he couldn't seem to find his way out. Yeah, it doesn't make me a bad person. I remained quiet. I believe in enjoying my life and different people and different experiences. I couldn't help it. Like mushrooms and assuming camera consciousness? He laughed, caught unaware. Yeah, like mushrooms and assuming camera consciousness. He was observing me with something that bordered on sincere warmth, and then he quickly drew a veil on his expression. But, uh, here came the rationalization. I don't plan on getting married, and kids are not, not anything I'm interested in. Hmm. What I thought but didn't say was that Cooper seemed like a guy who had convinced himself he could mask his real desires through the strategic deployment of his charm. I assumed he thought of himself as crafty. In reality, he came across as a garrulous boy in the body of a hot man, striving to get some purchase on his place in Hollywood's Wonderland while doing his flat-out best to appear as if he was supremely confident and totally at home. So, what are you ordering? said Cooper. Salad. Don't say salad. Please order something real to eat, Cooper insisted. I set down my menu. I leave it to your discretion. No, no you don't. You don't play that game with me. I'm on to you. This isn't about my male ego, my hangover, or my stupid behavior. Hey, I didn't say stupid, I reminded him. You are my boss. Okay. Cooper was exasperated that I was stifling his efforts to apologize. I realized I was beginning to be able to read him. Could you please eat something besides rabbit food? What is it with you people and your salads? I picked up my menu and murmured, Hostel much? I heard that, Cooper said. I'm glad. You're funny. I'm glad I hired you. You like white or red? I like Chardonnay. Of course you do. We're ordering a Cabernet, a nice big California Cabernet. Fabulous, I said. You're not being straight with me, Billy. I'm not? I was wondering how long I was expected to keep Mr. Daniels company, if pasta qualified as real food, and why he was being such a strange mix of antagonistic and sweet. Perhaps I couldn't read him that well after all. I want you to know something. You can sleep with me any time you want. You just say the word. Any time. Ah. It was straight out of a screwball comedy, except in real life it wasn't in the least bit charming. The explanation for his behavior lay at the heart of bringing up baby. The love impulse in the male most often reveals itself in terms of conflict. He was as attracted to me as I was to him. Somehow that just made things worse. 
Why was it so much nicer to fantasize about snuggling up to a beautiful man than to have a solid option? Thank you, Mr. Daniels, but I'll be straight with you. Having a five-year-old child, a troubled marriage, to say the least, and more than a full-time job, has just about killed my sex drive. Now that's the first honest thing you've said to me tonight. Yeah, I see you. Always smiling. Always agreeable. But in your eyes, it's always there. Like right now. You look bored and disgusted. I'm not bored and disgusted. Yeah, well, if anything changes, you let me know. Yes, sir. Hugh keeps saying that, but you know and I know we're about the same age. It's a sign of my respect, I said. Cooper was laughing as the waiter arrived to take our order, and I definitely did not feel at ease. My boss was an achiever, and that was part of his appeal. We were the same age, uh, but he was light years ahead of me in terms of career. I had seen the news shots that he hung in his office from his stint as a photographer at the Los Angeles Times. He had risen through sheer effort, while I had coasted along to a great extent on my looks. I looked around the restaurant. It was a brightly lit, plate-glassed, aqua-green modern box on Melrose Avenue that seated 36. It was difficult to get a reservation, and the chef, a woman, was a year younger than I was. I felt compelled to catch up to my peers. I had made a tactical error. I had presented myself as a challenge. And I had Cooper pegged as somebody who likes overcoming obstacles. And truly, at that moment, I didn't have the energy to be overcome. I would have preferred to be home with Dave glued to CNN and Mr. Booker reading about Captain Ahab. The way things were going and the way Cooper was ordering, four courses and a bottle of Chardonnay to start, followed by the cab with our entrees, I wouldn't even be there to kiss Jake goodnight. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.